So this comes from Mark 8, and you can see it on the screen there. Uh, Mark 8, 22, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people bought a blind man, and they begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, and he led him outside the village. When he had spit, it's always a good time, when he, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Interesting story, isn't it? God, help us to see what's going on here this morning. Perhaps you're familiar with the idea that in the Bible in general, but particularly in the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, references to blindness are not just about physical blindness. Blindness is a, is a recurring theme throughout Scripture, uh, sort of significantly in the prophets, but really significantly in Jesus's uh, ministry and then onwards into the New Testament. And it's used symbolically, the notion of blind, blindness, often to represent spiritual blindness or a lack of understanding. You might notice as you read the accounts of Jesus's teaching and ministry in the Gospels that Jesus frequently heals individuals who are physically blind, but the healings are then used to demonstrate Jesus's power and authority. Ever noticed that? Ever wondered about that? It's not as though he doesn't really heal the blind and care about any kind of physical challenge that we might face. But when the writers of the Gospels put these stories together, there's always another layer of meaning. There's always something bigger that Jesus is doing. One of the most well-known stories in the New Testament is the healing of a blind man in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. This story is unique in that the blind man's healing is preceded by a discussion amongst the Pharisees, and Pastor Chris mentioned this story not so long ago, a discussion amongst the Pharisees about whether the man's blindness is a result of his own sin or the sin of his parents. If you know that story, you remember Pastor Chris's message, Jesus comes down hard on that idea. He refutes it. He says that the blind man's blindness for him, is an opportunity for God and his glory to be revealed. And if you go and read that story in your own time, you'll see that through this healing, Jesus not only restores the man's physical sight, but also his spiritual sight. As the man declares his belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Another example from the New Testament uh, that we might look to is found in the Gospel of Matthew. 
in the 15th chapter of this gospel, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Uh, He says, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if a blind person leads a blind person, they will fall into a pit. In this passage, Jesus is highlighting the danger of spiritual blindness and the importance of seeking guidance from those who have true wisdom, insight and understanding. In uh, the New Testament and in the ministry of Jesus, the idea of spiritual blindness is often linked to sin. Uh, In Romans, the Apostle Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul suggests that humanity's rejection of God can lead to a kind of spiritual blindness which prevents us from understanding and accepting the truth of God's word. In the book of Acts, this same man, Saul, who becomes Paul, is blind for three days after his conversion experience. Anyone remember that story? And in this narrative, it's significant because it serves as a symbol of his spiritual blindness before his conversion and his newfound spiritual sight after it. You remember, he's actually persecuting Jesus and his people. He's incensed by it. His religious framework tells him that something wrong is going on here. And then he has this powerful encounter with the risen Christ. Scales fall from his eyes. He sees actually what God is doing through Jesus. So, just even by these few examples from the New Testament that I've mentioned, I hope you see, see what I did there? I hope you see that blindness in the New Testament is often about more than physical blindness. It's about spiritual blindness very often or a lack of understanding. When Jesus heals physical blindness, he is demonstrating his power, his authority. Through his teaching and actions, Jesus exposes the danger of spiritual blindness and the importance of seeking true understanding and insight. The story of Paul's blindness, Saul's blindness, also serves as a powerful symbol of the transformative power of conversion, demonstrating that through faith in Jesus, we can be given new spiritual sight and understanding. So, all this being said, what of the passage that I opened with, Mark 8, where partway through, there is this experience that the man being healed has of being only partially healed, of seeing but not yet seeing clearly. I think part of the work that the New Testament does is to show us Jesus in contrast to those who are physically blind. Jesus comes to bring spiritual as well as physical clarity because he sees himself 
and is himself spiritual truth. And central to this is the way that he sees others. When other people don't. I think, for instance, of the healing I mentioned from John 9. I think the Pharisees in that passage where they're asking about, you know, who sinned? Is the man blind because his parents sinned or he sinned? They're doing actually something quite relatable. I mean, Jesus sort of rebukes them, but they're doing something that I, humanly, can understand. The idea that this man or anyone, for that matter, could be blind, um, not because it's his or someone's fault, is an uncomfortable idea. The idea that sometimes you seem to just draw the short straw in life and you suffer (laughs) and it's not necessarily your fault or someone else's fault can be a difficult thing for us to get our heads around. I think what the Pharisees are trying to do here in the instance of this blind man wondering why he's blind is they're trying to sort of put him in a box. They're trying to make a story of his suffering. They're trying to make a sort of, to fashion or construct a kind of moral object lesson. Because if you can do that, you can sort of somehow put the person's suffering aside. They deserve it somehow. I won't do that thing that means that they deserve it. I can get on with my life. Jesus won't have this. He says essentially that this man is made in God's image. He is loved by God as much as any of us. Jesus, by his action and in his words, says, I see this man. I see his suffering. And for God's glory, (laughs) I will bring it to an end. And he does. The Pharisees in John 9 didn't really see the blind man. To make sense of his suffering, they were prepared to do something very human but regrettable. They were prepared to reduce his humanity so that he could be an object in an object lesson. Jesus, of course, sees the man fully and clearly. And restores him. So to the point of what it means that the blind man in Mark 8 sees people that look like trees partway through being healed. I believe that the gospel text in Mark 8 is saying that it's possible to be partway on a journey to seeing things with full clarity remembering that to see in the bible isn't just to see physically but is to see on a more significant level it is possible i'll repeat that to be part way on a journey to seeing things with full clarity to seeing things as they really are 
whether it's people who we begin to see fully, clearly, as God does, not as objects in our worldview, not as object lessons as a part of our political ideology or economic ideology, but to see them as people made in God's image, people for whom God came into the world as a human being and ultimately laid down his life. Beloved children of God. I was thinking about all this in anticipation of of the week ahead of today, Aboriginal Sunday, of uh, Australia Day later in the week. And I was reflecting on how part of the challenge of preparing a sermon for a week like this is that in a room like this, and I think it's a mark of God amongst us, nevertheless it's difficult. In a room like this, we see things quite differently. Each one of us sees the issues that might come up on a Sunday like this or in the week ahead, slightly different from the person next to us. Now, my first instinct has always been to assume that I see everything as clearly as God himself. But I have come to see over the years as Jesus has touched me, sometimes maybe spit in my eye, been healing me, that I have reason to, to back off that assumption, to, to, to bring a little bit of humility into my um, worldview, as it were. I, I'm not always right. I've learned that the hard way over the years. There's a sense in which, over the course of my life, thanks to the work of the Spirit, thanks to Jesus and everything that he's done for me, thanks in part just to growing up, things are still coming into focus for me. Can anyone relate to that? Thanking God or the universe that you're a little bit smarter this year than you were five years ago, that you understand things a little better. Hopefully, in thinking that, (laughs) we're right. One illustration of this in my life that has um, stood out to me as I've been thinking about these things this week, um, that, that relates to this wonderful country that we live in, um, uh, I'm going to share with you just for the next few moments. So some of you will know uh, that I wasn't born in Australia. And whilst my mother was born in Australia, my father wasn't. Um, So there was this sense in our house, uh, once we moved here and I grew up here, um, there was this sense of our family to a certain extent coming to know and understand the country that we had moved to, the country that we made our home in. And particularly uh, as I've thought about this, I, I think about my father's experience of this as someone who definitely wasn't Australian when he moved here, of coming to understand and appreciate the landscapes here. 
I remember, and Dad might get an opportunity to set this straight if I misrepresent him at any point uh, uh, in a few weeks when we get him to preach next. But I remember my dad talking about initially, and you can even shout out, Dad, if I'm misrepresenting you here, initially feeling a little bit unimpressed with the Australian landscape. Um, And I remember him saying things like he had to kind of grow in his appreciation of the beauty of of the Australian landscape. The bush, uh, initially it was like he didn't have eyes to see (laughs) uh, because he'd grown up in Africa and in Britain. And um, I've got to say I can relate to this. I almost feel as if I kind of came genetically preloaded to appreciate European landscapes. Now, that's changed, and you'll see as I tell this story, but I I think there might be something to that. Actually, my kids, who've never been anywhere else, we've been reading Tolkien recently, and it's a very kind of European sort of... uh, landscape it's an imaginary landscape but it sounds like Europe and there's something about it that just clicks with them we play uh, Celtic music and it's almost like uh, you know you think they were Irish kids as a result there's there's something that goes deep with them about being a long way back from Europe as a child Um, as I remember my childhood, the parts of the country which I most resonated with, I've come to see were the parts that looked most European. Rolling green hills, babbling brooks with willow trees next to them, hedges and rows of imported trees. Can anyone else relate to this? And evidently, (laughs) I stood in a kind of settler tradition in doing this. I like to imagine uh, as the country was being settled by Europeans, the kind of conversations that the settlers had. William, if we were to clear this block that we've staked out of every single tree that is on it and we were to fill the creek with trout that we'd imported from home, and we were to line the driveway and the creeks with willow trees, and if we were to release some red deer into our country and squint our eyes just a bit, it would almost look like New England or New South Wales. Surely we could call a country like this the Queen's Land. Of course, it's natural to long for what's familiar. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't also involve a kind of blindness. (laughs) This was something that came home very clearly to me when I first heard the story of... I can't click that right now, Megs. Do you think... Oh, so there's a... That's Armadale. (laughs) Look at those beautiful trees you wouldn't know you're in Australia and all the white people in the room said isn't that lovely (laughs) maybe not quite all of them the next picture thanks Meg when I first heard the story of this man um, so he's right there looking at the 
you know the photo's about him because he's looking at the, at the lens. His name is Harold Christian Dunavig. Anybody heard of him? He's actually quite a significant person in the history of our country. So Harold Danavig was a Norwegian businessman and philanthropist who was known for his mission to ship live fish to Australia in the early 1900s. And uh, he's lauded as quite an entrepreneur and innovator uh, in the fish farming industry. Anyway, it was quite a process to work out how to ship wonderful fish like haddock, Atlantic cod, place, all the way from Norway and Britain here to Australia. But it was worthwhile because Australians, at least settler Australians, really wanted to eat those fish. Right? So he was filling ships with live fingerlings and shipping them all the way across the ocean uh, to Sydney, hoping either to be able to sell them at the market or to sell them to people who would farm them. Phenomenal. Uh, some of the species of fish, as you can imagine, survived a little bit better than others. Some just didn't make the trip at all. But Harold established a place for him in himself in our history because he managed to bring those wonderful fish to the table for Australians. Now, this is impressive, um, but the thing is, even though I'm a settler who loves a bit of deep-fried haddock, God gave me a son uh, who came out of the womb, and this is a slight exaggeration, but only slight, wanting to catch fish. And I've shown this uh, picture way too many times, but uh, it just has to be shown again. Sorry. So there he is, Iggy, with his first Murray cod. Anyway, as I've lived with Iggy, and I had a little bit of a runway on the way up there, a um, bit of an interest in fishing, but I've done a lot more of it since Iggy came along, it's occurred to me that for all of Harold's innovation, for all of his resilience, for all of his determination, for everything that he achieved, there's something a little bit off about his mission. Because if you want something on your plate with your chips, <laughs> it might surprise you to learn there's a few fish in the waters around here already, right? I don't know what farmed haddock tasted like after it had been shipped thousands of miles across the ocean. But I'd hazard a guess, this doesn't quite come up to the scratch of fresh wild-caught barramundi. <laughs> Do you see the point that I'm creeping up on here? The people of sort of my heritage who lived in this country all that time ago for all uh, their enthusiasm, for all their optimism, for all their willingness to come down here and live on the other side of the world, didn't see the country. <laughs> they, they didn't see 
the, the seafood that abounds, uh, the fish that fill our rivers, the Murray Cod, the Barramundi, flathead and chips, come on, fresh whiting and chips. They didn't see that stuff as food. They were still very much Europeans, living all the way down here, so far from Europe. And, you know, I, I think this story is somewhat symbolic for us, many of us in this nation. It's definitely symbolic for me and my life. That one of the things, and, you know, I, I'm going to spiritualise this because I think it's spiritual. One of the things I think that God has been showing me, that I've been blind to, <laughs> is the country that I live in. So many ways in which, really, I'm still essentially an Englishman living somewhere in England. I thank God as he begins to give me a revelation of the beauty of Australia as he's made it for that revelation. Because don't we live in a spectacular country? I mean, aren't we so lucky... <laughs> to live here even in southeast Queensland. You drive two hours southwest, you're in the rainforest. You drive two hours north, that expansive uh, national park, the sandy, Great Sandy National Park, the, the islands in the bay. We're really spoiled. I've come to realise it's <laughs> sort of a, it's more than a pity the ways that I took for granted knowing this wonderful country without really actually knowing it. One of the implications of this um, realisation that I've had across the course of my life is that while I've loved this country, I've often actually been blind to it. And a bit like the blind the man who saw people as trees, even more significantly, I've come to realise that I've often been blind to those people <laughs> who have lived in this country so much longer than I have and my own people have. I'm not sure um, how much knowledge you have of uh, Aboriginal Sunday, Pastor Graham's made uh, the decision that we were going to mark it today. Um, but part of the history of it is, is that um, not everyone observes it anymore. In fact, in 1945, as I understand it, so it was implemented, instituted in 1938. In 1945, uh, generally, uh, the decision was made that it would get rolled into NAIDOC week. And, and part of the reason for doing that was because of uh, the discomfort <laughs> that was caused with having Aboriginal Sunday so close to Australia Day. Um, it was like, in order for people to be able to actually really see what the day was about, <laughs> We needed to remove the distraction, remove the conflict, remove the tension that existed 
in having a day of lament so close to a day that was intended to be about celebration. But our Lord, uh, Pastor Graham's uh, courage, his conviction on this point, because I, I think it's a good thing <laughs> to give ourselves the opportunity to give the Holy Spirit the opportunity again to try and see things, to try and see what this day is about, to listen for the stories that might come up at this time of year, not just for the general population, but particularly for our First Nation brothers and sisters. The more I've leaned into this time of year, you know, I'm someone who, want, who, who has so much to celebrate when it comes to Australia Day. I love this country. But I, I've leaned into the, the voices of First Nations people around this time of year. And my experience is the majority of them find it a very difficult time. I'm going to get the band up in a moment. I was thinking this week about a story that um, I've told my kids before. And uh, it's a story I think most of you will know. It's a story I've told them when I'm not sure if they're telling me the truth. It's a story about a boy who has the job of looking after some animals in the paddock. Um, and for whatever reason, he's bored. He doesn't want to be there. He runs back to the homestead and says, there's a wolf out there. You know the story now, don't you? And so everyone goes out to attend to this wolf and there's no wolf. And as you tell the story, depending on how much time you've got, how strongly you want to make the point, he, he does it. He does it multiple times. He's, he, he, he cries wolf. Everyone comes out. There's no wolf until the final cycle where the wolf really comes. You know the story, don't you? And everyone has learned not to listen to him and is devoured by the wolf. It's a really useful story. If you want to make a point about telling the truth to children. And so we tell it to children. On another level, it's an absolutely horrifying story. <laughs> it's a story in which a boy is just an object lesson. You're not supposed to be traumatised by the fact that a child is devoured by a wild animal because that's not the point of the story. I think we can get away with telling stories like that about people that don't exist for the point of an object lesson. What we can't do, what Jesus would never let us get away with, is telling stories to make a point about real people. And we do that as human beings, don't we? These people are like that because 
the media has made this group of people think this way about this other group of people because. And, you know, there may be layers of truth to our analysis. Maybe our ideologies are closer to the truth than anyone else's. But to the extent (laughs) that we could not see someone in front of us who God has made (laughs) in his image, who he has died for, who he loves, who he wants to restore, who every time they cry out, he hears them and his heart is broken. To the extent that we would ever risk making real people objects in an object lesson, we break the father's heart and we misrepresent his son. We need the spirit of truth, the spirit of God to guide us in these things. Team, could you begin to play? If you've got a communion cup in front of you, it's part of the point of this. (laughs) We do do this to each other. Let me read the New Testament account as you're opening these. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the the forgiveness of sins. In 1 John 1.7, it says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us of all sin. Let me pray for you as you eat and drink. Jesus, as we take these symbols, as we share in this meal, inevitably, I'm first in line, but inevitably we're full of ideas about the way the world works. There's a tendency in each of our heart (laughs) to dehumanise, to make others the object in an object lesson. Thank you, God, that you have seen each one of us. The reason why we're here is we've been seen by you. You've known us. You've loved us by your spirit, by your power as we take these emblems. Give us the revelation your heart has of each one of our brothers and sisters. Lord, as we look forward in this country to a day where we can all celebrate together, do a work in us, your people, I pray. May we as your people be a reconciled and reconciling people.